0: The Russian Empire was built by men like Mikhail, Ilarionovich, Golenishev, Kutuzov. A veteran of Russia's 18th century wars against the Ottomans, the Poles, and others, and later, and most famously of all, the architect of Russia's strategy to defeat Napoleon in 1812, Kutuzov was the warrior diplomat who epitomized the Russia of Tsars Catherine, Paul, and Alexander. No less an authority than Tolstoy argued as much in War and Peace, where Kutuzov is portrayed as a kind of quintessential Russian soul, less an actor in world events and more someone who achieves victory in the long run through an acceptance of the forces of history. My guest today takes a different view of the man, and I just note that this is one of my favorite conversations we've recorded thus far on School of War. I hope you enjoy.
1: It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941. A date which will
0: live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. the people who not
1: these buildings down will hear all of us do. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender.
0: Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm joined today by Alexander... Mika Baridze, who is a professor of history and Ruth heron Noel endowed chair at Louisiana State University Shreveport. He is the author, most recently, of Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so
1: much, Aaron. It's a pleasure and a joy to be here.
0: Last time we talked about the Napoleonic Wars in their global context, and this time we're going to zoom in on a figure who has a critical role to play in those wars. You paint this picture of a life that that illustrates and is at the center of... You know, essentially the second half of 18th century Russian history into the Napoleonic War. So, why don't we just talk about you know why why Kutuzov? What is what is the big picture significance of this man? And then I'd like to hear a little bit about the Russian world into which he was born. Which is, I think, again, before you know those of us who who understand Russia essentially from 19th century literature. I don't know a lot about mid 18th century Russia, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. Um, Kutuzov offers a a good example of biography as a form of military history. You know, there is different ways you can do military history or history in general. And and to me, a kind of biography offers a a more nuanced, more condensed look at, at this snapshot of the historical period. And Kutuzov in particular is is, uh, is particularly interesting because he had a very long career and distinguished career. He starts serving in 1762, and he will end serving in 1813. So it's a span of five decades. And to me, it, it you know, I was struck that his life actually is the saga of Russian military history, a dramatic uh, history that is full of ups and downs. So. It's a period of Russian imperial growth that made Kutuzov such an important, kind of iconic historical figure. That's one reason. But the second, I think, important reason is that, it is, and that I was always puzzled how historical figures are kind of uh, remembered, how they're perceived, how they're commemorated and portrayed. And Kutuzov, along with Napoleon, offers a good example of, of historical myth-making. Uh, where oftentimes the reality is consumed by later day uh, legends and myths. And in Napoleon's case, as I point out in, in the book, Napoleon himself creates the legend that ultimately consumes him as kind of this real persona of him.
0: And so when he be- becomes a young officer, I should know this, but in the early 1760s, is Catherine in charge yet? Yes, so she actually comes to power
1: just as he is commissioned. In fact, that's the first kind of turning point in his life, is that the summer that he's commissioned as a as an as a junior officer is the summer when Catherine his power in the coup,
0: and of course he he would rise to. To a level where he would have close relations with her and her successors, vivid relations, even in, in certain certain respects. I, I I did not know much about the the brief reign of of Czar Paul until I read about it uh, in the book. You <laughs> should get to that. as a, some, yeah. some, uh, some wild material. So when he, so he's a young you know young equivalent of a of a second lieutenant. What is what is Catherine's vision? What is her attitude towards the West? Her attitude towards the South? What are, what is the imperial program here that Kutuzov is is embarking upon as a young officer? That is a
1: great question, because in many respects, it is a question that is pertinent to, uh, in light of current affairs in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, some of you listeners probably follow this story that just a few days ago, Russian authorities dug up the grave of Gregory Pachomkin in Kherson and, in fact, stole his body. Because is the is the architect of this Russian imperial expansion into what is today Ukraine. And and further on into the Balkan Peninsula, Catherine, of course, approves, and 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 it's done with her approval. But Russia is a newcomer; it's a new kid on the block. As an empire, it was only proclaimed five decades or so old, so it needs to prove itself. And, and proving it involves conquest, occupation, neighboring territories, kind of expanding the borders. And the key, one of the key directions. Is indeed in the southwest uh, into the territory of what is today Ukraine and what was uh, back then Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and, and further on into the Ottoman-controlled Balkan Peninsula. And Pachomkin kind of pushed Catherine, and Pachomkin fought several major wars against both Poland and Ottoman Empire, in which Kutuzov received the Baptism by Fire, and so it's it's his proving grounds, and he is fortunate in, in that during this. He was a encounters the best, some of the brightest military officers in Europe, and these were Russian commanders. Two of them, in particular, one of them probably familiar to your listeners, the future generalissimo Alexander Suvorov, the man who is brilliant by all accounts, and the second one is lesser known but no less brilliant man by the name of Peter Rumensov. And Kutuzov served under both of them. He had the opportunity to learn from them, from their kind of pioneering approach. We oftentimes talk about Napoleon as kind of, you know, this ability, you know, focus on speed, mobility, divide force in order to concentrate it at a strategic point. All, uh, all that is part of Romanzo's approach to war. And Kutuzov as a young officer is exposed to all of this, so he, he, he learns a lot. By, by observing the senior officers. Tell us what Kutuzov is like as a young man, you know, his family. It is a well-off family. Uh, by the time Kutuzov goes into, uh, into military sludge, his father has to fill out paperwork, and in that paperwork, the family owns several hundred Serbs, uh, several villages, so the family is clearly well-off. Although, you know, I do want to mention that at the height of this kind of, a career when he owns of serves when Catherine has rewarded him with his vast estates in Poland even then he consistently complains about lack of money the second thing i think we need to point out is that he received good education i went to one of the best military educational schools in russia and excelled at 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 what he did in fact to such a degree that even as a young kid he's just 13 years old when he's asked to teach fellow cadets, you know he clearly is 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 going kind of, you know doing better than them. And later on, when he becomes officer, one of the things that I think I kind of revalue him more of a a man who was at the right place, maybe at the right time. But the more I studied him, the the more I, I developed great respect for him because he is clearly a professional officer, a man who could do almost everything that was asked of him. And so I point out in the book, in fact, I struggled to I struggled to find another officer, an, an example, another example of an officer who had as many diverse assignments as Kutuzov did because he starts as an engineer officer, then is a staff officer, quartermaster officer. He's uh, tasked with leading regular infantry, grenadier infantry. He's organizing light cavalry, uh, lancer U- uh, regiment, then he becomes a diplomat, and then he, of course, becomes the chief who leads the Russian armies to ultimately to the victory over Napoleon. And it's really astonishing that whenever Potemkin or his successors needed something to be done, they would effectively turn to this man and say, "Can you do it?" And the answer invariably was, "Yes, I can."
0: So you you talk about the the military modernization of the era, and of course, this is happening, you know, across Europe. What is what is distinctive about Russian military modernization or, or is it sort of of a piece with what you would see happening in France or Germany or, or I should say Prussia maybe or, or, the, or, or Britain?
1: A friend of mine, a wonderful historian, Christy Pikikero, out at George Mason a few years back, she wrote a fascinating study on, on what she calls military enlightenment. Most listeners are kind of familiar with enlightenment, but here we deal with the kind of with how people engage in war, how effectively, what kind of wars should we fight? You know, what's the purpose of the war? And Russia, you know, in Kutuzov's role, kind of, Kutuzov's career fits very well within this uh, military enlightenment. First, because he benefited from it as a young kid. So he was involved in that school that I mentioned. And that effort, kind of, Shuvalov and his military enlightenment leaders wanted to create what they called a new type of people, that is individuals who would be well-rounded, not just officers kind of steeped in their military expertise, but men who will be, as, as one of them writes, and it's a quote, European-minded, modern, and capable of actively serving in, 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 a, in, 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 kind of in a state service. So it's not just about military service, but being well, you know, being capable of performing various duties all at once. And Shuvala, for example, castigates uh, existing educational system, and, and Kutuza benefited from this approach. But later on, when he is already an accomplished man, so again, he goes to the 1750s, but now when we get to 1790s, an interesting situation develops where by the time he is now in 1790s, This approach that wanted to create new type of people by bringing enlightenment, military, you know, kind of enlightenment reforms, and diversifying education and emphasizing more about well roundness, creates a counter problem where the military schools, and not just in Russia but elsewhere, focused on things that were not necessarily military related. And as one of the contemporaries complained, that the graduates of the military school, they can write a poem and perform a play. But they can't do the basics of military service. So kind of an opposite problem. Funny. And so then Kutuzov makes sure that the officers the educational system pro- produces are well steeped in the military training. And he he's this cadet corps, the premier institution of military education in Russia for several years, uh, introduces uh, substantive changes in the system to achieve that balance, to create the new type of people who are good officers but also good.
0: Kind of citizens. I am going to miss things here, but I, I we should talk a little bit about the wars that are being fought under Catherine and Kutuzov's role within them. There's there's a war, possibly multiple wars. There's a lot. It's hard to keep track, of, which, which is why we have you, Alex. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a war in Poland. There's obviously a series yeah. of conflicts with the Ottomans. What <clears throat> again, without getting too in the weeds here, what what are, what is happening here? Is it just imperial expansion outwards? Is that the basic force here? Like, why are we fighting these wars and, and what is Kutuzov yes. up to? It
1: is, uh, in many in respects, imperial opportunism. So Polish-Lithuania is going through a period of time when this is the state that used to be one of the largest in, in Europe and, and state that uh, determined kind of the future of Europe in places like Vienna in 1680s, right? But uh, now we're, we are in mid-18th century and Polish-Lithuanian fortunes have declined while the uh, Russia has risen and then a process similar to dealing with nowadays in fact many of the parallels are still striking so for example Catherine was very keen on you kind know, of propping up pro-Russian opposition groups within Polish Lithuania and then to intervene on behalf and you know, ostensibly to protect the poles with the into the Polish Affairs The same applies in the Ottoman Empire Ottoman Empire is going through a period of of, of transition and, 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 and a, a difficult one at that. And the Russian aggrandize themselves in in places like Ukraine, like Northern Balkan Peninsula, like Caucasus, and so we have this series of conflicts that you mentioned, starting in 1760s. Both from 1760s to 1792, we have uh, two major wars between Russia and Ottoman Empire, and at the same time, we see the beginning of the Polish list, the Polish-Russian conflict that will tr- evolve Polish partition and the southwestern ukraine and now is pushing into the territory of modern-day uh, romania uh, ultimately will reach the the borders of danube, uh, the danube along the the shores of the danube river where kutuzov will be fighting in in 1810 1811 and so here you have the sustained imperial expansion where uh, russian authorities are Willing to exploit the weaknesses of their opponents and to maximize the advantages that they already have in this centralized, modernized Russian military to 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 their own advantage.
0: And prior to the French Revolution, what is the nature of Russian alignment with the major continental powers? Is there well, what to, to the extent that there there is a, you know a, a system of relations that looks more like the nineteenth century? What what is it? In the, in, the,
1: in my early, you know, last book in, on the Napoleonic Wars, I kind of changed the focus and discussion by saying that French Revolution, as important as it is, right, is actually uh, shaping not just the destiny of, the, of, of France, but also of, of places like Poland, Lithuania. Because we often forget that uh, justice revolution was raging in, in France. There, were revol- there was a revolution in Poland in fact the first written constitution in europe in that sense kind of modern sense is the polish constitution of 1791 that predates the french constitution and the europe's preoccupation with french affairs kind of gives the wiggle room for russia to intervene in poland and and that then in kind of creates this effect where once russian intervention is unfolding in poland other powers like prussia and austria are more interested in uh, maximizing their profits in Poland rather than dealing with French revolution so we see for example in 1790 1791 all the way to 92 russian and austrian attention is is firmly on polish affairs rather than on the french affairs so that gives french revolutionaries then kind of the breathing space to 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 act and, and to evolve so those events are interconnected absolutely and the collapse of the polish the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 94, 95, of course, is taking place against the background of the War of the First Coalition, which is waged against France or, or you know, Republican France. Russia, not you know, probably prudently so, uh, chose not to get involved in the wars against France. Instead, it maximized its efforts on dealing with Poland, Lithuania, and with the Ottomans. And in both fronts, the uh, Russians prevailed. Poland, Lithuania this was destroyed, and in the Ottoman case, the Ottoman Empire was forced to
0: forfeit significant territories in, in modern-day Ukraine. So Kutuzov is, is out there as an operational-level leader throughout this period, and of course, he's, he's badly wounded. He's shot in the head, which is usually not a—I mean, it's not good in 2022— <laughs> and I, I can imagine the outcomes yeah. were significantly worse statistically in the 18th century.
1: Especially when you're shot twice, right? Exactly, right? Once, right? In, in, the, uh, in the same spot, correct? Uh, Almost, almost same almost. spot. Okay, uh, so, so tell, tell us about this. Yeah. So there was the first time Kutuzov uh, suffers the injury, and it's the most dangerous one, is is in the Crimea. And actually, at the end of the war that the Russia was fighting against Ottoman Turks from 67, seventy sixty seven to seventy seventy four. Unbeknown to these kind of warring sites in the Crimea, peace was already signed at Kuchukainargyi in 1774, but the news hasn't reached them yet. And so there is a battle fought in a a remote corner of Crimea in, in late summer of 74. And it involves this Ottoman expeditionary force that has landed on the shore of Crimea and is making its way inland. And Russians try to stop that force by sending a small unit uh, Kutuzov is there, and the two sides meet in this very rugged valley. And so as they're fighting, Kutuzov rallies his grenadiers and kind of leads the charge. And as he's leading the charge, at one point, he seems to have climbed on a boulder so they, so the troops could see him, right? And as he turns his face to rally and kind of call them, the Ottoman bullet hits his left temple, penetrates his skull, goes through his skull in, in front of frontal lobe, and then exits on the exact other side on on the right temple, and it's absolutely stunning because Ukrainian archaeologists have done archaeological kind of digs on 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 this vandal size, and they found many of the Russian and Ottoman span bullets that tend to tend to range from eighteen millimeters to about twenty five, so that's from half an inch to almost an inch, even a small. <laughs> No. Having a small one of oh, this, 80, even the 18 millimeter striking you in the skull, the... passing through your frontal lobe without affecting your brain, is, is I don't know what the odds of that are. The uh,
0: velocity, I guess, would have been a lot less than bullets. Yeah, today. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But
1: it's even still then, a bullet in your brain. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, considering how dirty those bullets were and right, they were flying out of the inwards. Somehow, Kutuzov was rescued from the battlefield. His soldiers carried him out. And there was a very talented French surgeon in the Russian service who clearly did everything right. He he cleaned the wound, he he prepped it, he kind of treated it so that it took Kutuzov a year to recover, but he made complete recovery. In fact, this kind of the traditional view of Kutuzov wearing an eye patch and kind of blinding one eye is actually not true. He never wore an eye patch. The eye patch is actually a, 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 an invention of Soviet cinema, and his eye—he could see through, through his eye, but it was the, the nerves and the, these muscles of that eye was were damaged by this head. and so the eye was a little bit skewed. The second time he is injured is actually also in Crimea, at this, at the northern part of it, where uh, during the siege of Ochakov. Uh, Kutuza was looking out of in, an embrasure, out of a, a fort, opening and the Ottoman bullet struck him in the front and in, in the cheek, penetrated his mouth and went through the neck. Once again, uh, remarkably old, the crucial nerves, arteries were not affected. In fact, he made the recovery six months later. He was back in, in saddle. And if we can count the third one, although after these two egregious ones, it's probably not as serious. On the field of Austerlitz, the, the famous Napoleonic victory, Kutuzov, of course, is a nominal commander in chief. And there he gets a third injury in the head when a splinter strikes him in the in the, in the face, but it's a kind of passing wound, a, f- a flesh wound, but it, it does leave a scar on his face. So it, it's, a, a contemporaries all marvel. How come does this man get shot twice in the head and survives and the conclusion was, the destiny is preparing him for something great. Well, <laughs> clearly that that prof- prophecy
0: got fulfilled in 1812. And he's recovering the for the first one, I think, right? He ends up in in Berlin. Is that right? He goes on a tour, that's right, to Berlin,
1: to Leiden in the Netherlands, and then stops in Vienna. So he kind of grand tour to recuperate. Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, she actually provides him with state support for it. So a rather handsome Financial support that allows him to, to to travel. So he meets Frederick the Great, for example. He meets some
0: of the leading
1: Prussian and Austrian military figures.
0: So let's talk a bit about Kutuzov and Catherine, and then and then her 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 successors, Paul and, and Alexander. And obviously, the Kutuzov Alexander relationship is central to to the history of of Europe. Towards the end of her time. She entrusts him with diplomatic missions. Correct. I mean, he becomes a very senior and central figure in the Russian government. And then, so let's let's start there. And how how does Paul's arrival and then Alexander's arrival how do all these things affect Kutuzov's fortunes?
1: Could uh, Catherine notice Kutuzov at an early kind of part of his career? I did. don't kind of. Trust these claims. The early biographers of Kutuzov made that you know it's that you know, it's Catherine who noticed him when he was just a young officer and had him promoted. They were all, you know looking at the archival documents. We see that the promotions had nothing to do with Catherine's choice. But later on, when he's a senior officer, Catherine does pay attention to him, especially after he had that egregious kind of injury. If the correspondence between Catherine and Potemkin is full of references to my general, my Kutuzov, kind of this. There is a certain kind of affinity she feels for him, especially after he makes what seemed to be a miraculous recovery. And she did int- increasingly trust important missions. Probably the most important one that gave him was to be the ambassador of Russian Empire to the Ottoman court, where Kutuzov spent 1793-94 in Constantinople, in, in Istanbul. And he did very well there. He performed uh, his duties admirably. He comes to. Assessing situation. And so in the book I point out that at a time when many people thought that the Ottomans were preparing for war against Russian Empire, and to that, you know, Russians were so concerned about and anxious about it that Catherine even ordered preparing armies for war. Kutuzov st- sends this steady series of reports that point by point dismantled this warmongering. Uh, claims and points out that ornaments are nowhere ready for war. So, and I, I like these kind of foots on the ground, very sober assessment. He's a very rational man. Then after he comes from Ottoman empire, Catherine entrusts him with the directorship of the premier institution of military education. That's also a crucial appointment since he's in charge of preparing future generation of officers. And at that kind of moment, she passes away. And he, her successor is Paul, who notoriously had a very difficult, complex relationship with his mother, kind of disliked <laughs> him. That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Kutuzov was able to adjust. And in fact, that's one, I think, one of the less palatable sides of his character. Something that his contemporaries remarked and something that I emphasize in the book, but also that many of his Russian and especially Soviet biographers tended to shy away, you kind know? of obscure or uh, completely be silent. And that is that Kutuzov was oftentimes a psychophant. Uh, he was a courtier in a negative kind of sense of it. In fact, contemporaries accused him of being a courtisan for his willingness to debase himself among the, the people who had the power. I, I kind of part of it understands why he does it, right? Because he's a part and parcel of this society, very hierarchical, based on privilege, based on this patron and client networks. But part of me, of course, wants him not to debase to the degree that he did. And the most famous infamous incident, of course, is when upon returning from Constantinople, he kind of goes to one of the Catherine's newest lovers and infamous kind of infamous scene when he prepares coffee, freshly brewed coffee for his lover and serves him in his bed. And that <laughs> struck everyone at the time as as being just ridiculous, except for Kutuzov, who does it repeatedly. (laughs) That's amazing. And of course, that part is like, I understand the patron-client relationship, but can you please not prepare a fresh coffee and serve?
0: (laughs) Have a little self-respect. I was going to say, as you started to describe this aspect of his character, as I say, it sort of reminds me a bit of of John Churchill, the the Duke of Marlborough, who, you know, Winston Churchill, of course, makes a virtue out of this flexibility in in right. But as you as you narrate the details here, I'm not sure that John ever prepared coffee for you know, <laughs> and I don't think did and have a lover. Well, you know what I mean. Like there there was not quite that level of debasement. Yeah. In fact, later on, I think the good example
1: will be Pushkin, Alexander Pushkin, probably the greatest of uh, Russian poets. When he when he's searching for an example of how emasculated Russian nobility has become in the relationship with the Royalty. He actually refers to Kutuzov and his coffee maker, our coffee pod, as that clarion of this is what we have become. Right here, we have a war veteran, a grisly general who's spent two decades on the battlefield, gets shot twice in the head, and he stands there meekly, brewing coffee for a time-serving kind of lover of empress, and he is willing to debase himself to that degree. So that actually becomes kind of a, a, a symbol of what Russian nobility has become. Kutuzov was able in kind of, to continue this this story of flexibility. He's able to adjust himself to Emperor Paul. And I, I, you know, I was born and raised in Soviet times. And I remember reading and of of course, teachers teaching, uh, teaching history, where Kutuzov was perceived to be this kind of voice of Russian way of war and Paul being the representation of prosophiles, tendencies, that he brought all that foreign influence and all that was bad. And part of me kind of st- still harbored those kind of sentiments. But until I looked deeply and I what I realized was that Kutuzo was actually, well, two things. One is that Paul was not that bad. So he's certainly not mad and crazy czar, but he is very rational about many things that he does. And in fact, the, the reform that he's or, or in popular imagination castigated for actually actually quite sane and, and needed the reforms, including the purging of the army of superfluous officers and hundreds and hundreds of generals who were drawing salaries but doing nothing. So all that is needed. And Kutuzov sees that, in fact, he welcomes Paul, the very symbol of the reform the Russian army needs. So he uses Paul to push through reform military educational system. And and he serves Paul very well, in fact, to a degree that there is a very close affinity, and and I wouldn't say friendship, but certainly relationship between the two. I found letters where Paul invites Kutuzov to come borrow books from his personal library so they can sit down and read together and discuss. I went through the court journals, something that many of my predecessors have done. And those court journals are recording on day-to-day basis, who came and ate lunch and dinners with the emperor, and I found that Kutuzov was there. And Kutuzov is virtually
0: the person who right. talked to Paul before his assassination in March of 1801. So, is there anything to? We'll, we'll I want to carry on to Alexander just a second, but is there anything to the sort of, you know, and correct me if you think I'm mischaracterizing this, but the sort of vision in Tolstoy of Kutuzov as this, you know, it's almost sort of ancient Russian spirit, this voice for something <laughs> essentially Russian. Is there, I mean, is, is that a creation? The
1: Tolstoyan vision of, of Kutuzov will
0: supplant the actual
1: individual, but I think there are kernels of truth in, in this portrayal. Uh, for example, Kutuzov was a thoroughly traditional man who grew up in a privileged environment and kind of took it for granted. So, at no point in his life did he, for example, Kind of look at the French Revolution and what it stood for, and said, "Yeah, that's, that's a good thing." He consistently rejected revolutionary ideals. He and he believed that Russia has this responsibility of containing the the the, the malaise of of revolution. So he owned people, right? He he was a serf owner. He and ne- it never crossed his mind to free them. He did, for example, however, kind of was a kind of benevolent, maybe kind of patron of the people that lived on the estates that he uh, owned. And he visited oftentimes and tried to promote industrial growth, manufacturing growth there. He, in his letter says that he's helping kind of lending, helping hand to the serfs who were struggling, but they were still his serfs. So that's kind of part of that vision. He was a religious man, a deeply religious soul. You know? So, for all that enlightenment talk that we can oftentimes engage in, he retained his belief in, in in traditional kind of belief in 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 God, and he was praying on almost day, well, I think on a daily basis, based on the correspondence we see. But I think this vision that Tolstoy paints of him as largely a passive man who kind of lets things go because he understands that there are much larger things at play and, you know, that he's just a sand, you know, kind of a small sand particle in the, in the, in the universe. I think that is a little bit overplayed because when we get to 1812, and as I show in, in the book, Kutuzov has a, a strategy, kind a, of a, a grand strategy that he pursues. And that strategy is a correct one for this, for that particular time. It's a strategy that is, clear that is pursued with determination by Kutuzov, and is the one that leads the Russian army to to victory in, um, in 1812
0: well, well let, let's let's come to that here in just just a now, moment but let's let's also let's go back to I guess it's is it 1801 he has this eerie conversation with Paul that Paul <laughs> sees himself in a distorted mirror and says look at that stupid mirror looks like my neck has been wrung or something like that it's quite <laughs> That's quite right. the last conversation then he's murdered that's it. Yeah, no, exactly. Like yeah. two, two hours yeah. later, he's murdered. <laughs> yeah. On behalf of his, his son. And so what talk about, you know, the Alexander-Kutuzov relationship is not exactly a, one that is uniformly smooth. And this has real consequences at Austerlitz and and, and beyond. Talk, talk a bit about Alexander and these two men and Kutuzov's role in Alexander's service.
1: Alexander himself is a very interesting, very complex character and there is a wonderful new biography by Marie-Pierre Rey that your listeners might be interested in kind of looking at because this is the man who is born into this conservative society Russian conservative society and yet his grandmother well uh, you know he's born with his parents who are even more conservative than most people around at, at the Russian court and then his grandmother Catherine takes him away from his parents and plunges him into her court which is more liberal. And so this boy, the, this child, has to navigate the more relaxed and liberal atmosphere of Catherine court in Peterhof and St. Petersburg, and his father's, Paul's, full, far more conservative environment in, in Gatchina. And I think that shaped his character. So he was kind of a, a two, two, two characters in one, right? Yeah, it certainly doesn't help that Catherine hired a, a liberal tutor, a Swiss tutor, to, to raise this man. And this tutor uh, kind of taught him the uh, ideals of enlightenment and the ideals of French Revolution, because Alexander is still a young man when he's, he's a child, effectively, actually going kind of t- he's entering teenage years when the revolution erupts. And uh, so the, all that had an impact on him. When his father was murdered, Alexander was aware of the conspiracy, but he didn't expect take it with a grain of salt, but he didn't expect that his father will be murdered. One cannot but wonder, it's like, what did you expect, right? Your father will just be imprisoned or be in retirement, what exactly? But anyways, he's shocked with the news of his father, father's death, and kind of he starts his reign uh, in the shadow of of, of that murder. And of course, he is kind of surrounded by the people who murdered his father. So that's also kind of a burden. And so, one of his first decisions, therefore, is kind of is to find a way he can balance the authority of those conspirators. And his way was by choosing Kutuzov, men whom his father trusted, right, to choose him as the governor general of the imperial capital city. And so, Kutuzov, who I've searched up and down and I cannot find any evidence implicating him in the conspiracy, which is an interesting kind of point in itself, that the conspirators didn't try to recruit him. But Kutuzov now becomes governor general of St. Petersburg. Uh, But it doesn't mean that he's completely kind of uh, outside the court, not at all. The very people that murdered Paul were people that he engaged with within the patron-client networks, right, within the kind of wider noble society. And so Kutuzov, therefore, demonstrates this yet another kind of character trait where he tries to navigate this court politics by doing what Alexander expects of him, but maybe not doing it too well because he doesn't want to burn his bridges with these key influential nobles. And one of the famous examples of this that I discuss in the book is when Alexander told him that you need to put police agents trailing some of these conspirators. And the way police does is so inept that they are kind of shadowing the carriage of the, one of the conspirator leaders they're shadowing openly, kind of sitting in the back, no disguise. This will be like a police car nowadays, actual markings with the sirens, right, following the suspect. And this, uh, these, the, the suspects, these, these conspirators, uh, actually own coachmen, are making faces and ridiculing the policemen as they're traveling. And so Alexander is told about this, and he's, he's quite pissed off, but it, I think, shows this Kutuzo's degree of flexibility. Now, that becomes a liability, however, once Alexander is able to remove the conspirators from the power. So once he negates them, neutralizes them, then Kutuzov is is a liability because of that flexibility, because it's unclear which way he might lean. And so in 1802, he's removed from power, and Alexander remembers that kind of flexibility, that that uncertainty of Kutuzov's, uh, which way he will lean. And there is also the, this generational issue between Alexander, who is in his right in his twenties, kind of young man, and, and and Kutuzov, who is much older, comes from the kind of Catherinean background. And the reason I mention is because Alexander surrounds himself with these young men who has who have new ideas. They want reforms. They want changes. They go to the degree that they consider constitutionalism. They consider emancipation of serfs all these kind of radical transformations, that would have been completely alien to Kutuzov. And um, if we read the transcripts of the meetings of the so-called unofficial committee where Alexander met with his young advisors, you see how disparaging they are of these old timers, that, they that they're kind of too sad in their ways, they're too conservative. And they also are kind of commenting that even the way they talk, the way they behave in the court, the way they come and kind of bow in front of the, uh, the czar, all that ro- ro- kind of rubs them the wrong way because it's it's all manifests manifests of the old way of life, and these young men want something different, and so Alexander therefore dislikes Kutuzov for his character as well, for who he is, right? the way he carries himself, and that there is a. One letter in particular where Alexander complains about the psychophancy of Kutuzov, that whenever he comes, he's too submissive, kind of too psychophant. And that becomes an issue in 1805 when Alexander appoints Kutuzov to lead the army against Napoleon. But then when he personally comes and takes over the army, then Kutuzov finds himself constrained where between the reality of what needs to be done
0: and the fact that the czar wants it done differently. So let's let's talk about Austerlitz. And I think you know people will, to, to the extent that listeners have have heard about Kutuzov, because it's in Tolstoy, you know, it's Ostrołęt and, and Borodino and you know, eighteen twelve, that it's what they'll remember. So what what actually happens at at, at austerlitz? What t- say? Just say a few words, if you would, about austerlitz and its in its broader context, and then the the Kutuzov Alexander sort of dance that occurs mm-hmm. there.
1: So this is part, of, of course, uh, the War of the Third Coalition, which erupts in the late summer of 1805. It's the war between France and a group of European powers that include uh, Britain, include Austria and uh, Russia, uh, along with other smaller powers, but these are the, the main ones. And the coalition decides to launch this massive campaign against France, a coordinated assault on French interests in, in Northern Europe in Netherlands, or back then the, the Dutch Republic, the Italy, and of course the main thrust in Central Europe, where Austrian, Austrian and Russian armies were supposed to kind of smash through Bavaria and, and get to, to the French borders. And Russia committed well over 100,000 troops for this campaign. And the main army that was sent to support this Austrian attack in, in, in Germany was given to Kutuzov. And so in September of 1805, Kutuzov leads some 50,000 men on this long 800-plus miles of marching from Russia to Bavaria. And we know, we know there is this long, uh, long-standing myth that began actually in the 1960s with some of my colleagues not being critical enough in, in how they analyze their sources. But there's this myth that the Allies, when they were planning they didn't account for the difference of calendars that the Russians were using Julian and that the rest of Europe was still on Gregorian calendar. But it's actually not true. If you look at the archival documents, the very documents that they drafted, worked and signed, you see that the Russians used both calendars, Gregorian and Julian to, in, in, their, in their correspondence and in the correspondence kind of with the Austrians or any documents that were shared were all in Gregorian calendar. And that's particularly important when we look at the memorandum that the Russians and Austrians drafted in the summer of 1805, which laid out a timetable when the Russian army was supposed to leave and when it was supposed to arrive in Bavaria. And that timetable is clear that Kutuzov was supposed to be in Bavaria sometime in late October. Now he arrives about a week late. Uh, uh, And and that is uh, crucial because Austrians without even waiting to see if he's going to be on time or not. In September, decide to preemptively strike into Bavaria, which creates a gap between their army and Kutuzov's army, a gap that Napoleon brilliantly exploits. in that massive maneuver in October that isolates Austrians at Ulm, destroys their main army, and then allows Napoleon to pursue the Kutuzov's army, which successfully retreats and then regroups. Uh, and at that junction, in November, Emperor Alexander joins the army. And by the statute of the Russian military statutes, as soon as the uh, the Russian ruler joined the army, he effectively became a commander-in-chief and took over. So irrespective of the fact that Alex said, Kutuzov, you know, Mifahil, you go on and you command the army, <laughs> the fact is he's there. And as there, everyone understands that the final decision, right, the buck stops with the czar. And so uh, Kutuzov finds himself kind of hamstrung that whatever he says needs to be kind of also double-checked by by the emperor. And the emperor is surrounded by that same group of young, ambitious men for all of them, including Alexander. This is their first war. They've never been to war before. They're all excited, right? They all think that you know, war is like the thing that you read in books and see in the illustrations is all about heroism and yeah. great heroes making decisions at the right time and the right moment and so they decide to go on offensive and engage Napoleon who they believe is weak we know that's not true we know that's part of this calculated image that Napoleon crafts to mislead the allies and the voice kind of the like cassandra the voice of reason that tries to tell alex don't do it, that we are walking a trap, is the voice of Kutuzov. And he repeatedly, in the last day of November, goes to the Tsar and tells him, instead of attacking, what we need is time. We need to be methodical. We need to retreat. We need to bid for time because more reinforcements will come. Napoleon is too far away from France, from his bases. French army is suffering from attrition. It's logistical lines are stretched. Time is our friend, right? We will gain more from bidding for time. And Alex, there is a famous exchange when I kind of cite in, in, in this conversation where at one point, when Kutuzov yet again tells him, let's wait, Alexander turns to him and says, you spend your time fighting the Turks and the French and beating them up, Oh, sorry, Turks and Poles, but now that you're facing real enemy now you're suddenly, you know, the the courage is leaving you. And Kutuzov is dismayed by this, right? This accusation of cowardness. The guy who spent his entire life on the battlefield gets shot in the head every every other week. And now he's being accused of being coward. And so he famously tells Alex that, well, from now on, I can just be a regular soldier and you command it. And Alex Alex, no, 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 you're gonna stay in charge. And and he factually imposes on Kutuzov this. Plan of going out and, and attacking Napoleon Austerlitz. And then we have that amazing scene, which Tolstoy br- does so brilliantly, of the war council. In yeah. fact, that scene is almost entirely taken by Tolstoy from one of the eyewitness accounts. And we see, right, the Austrian officer, Bayreuther, reading this long order, kind of disposition of what the army is supposed to do. And Kutuzov already knows that no matter what he says, this plan will take place, that he's been overruled repeatedly by the Emperor. And so he does the next best thing. He just reclines in his sofa and takes a nap. And so that is becomes this iconic scene of his of him being resigned to accept the fate.? Right? Tolstoy kind of uses that to point out that Kutuzov accepts what's what's to come. But what he doesn't say is that right after the council ends, Kutuzov goes and makes one last-ditched effort to stop this battle because mm-hmm. he knows he's gonna they're gonna lose it. So he goes that night to senior court official Nikolai Tolstoy, and he tells him the following. And this is a, a quote from from Tolstoy you know the way Tolstoy recounted later on, and he says Kut- Kutuzov told him, His Majesty intends to fight a battle, but you must tell him. To stop, not to do it, because we are almost certain to lose the battle tomorrow. It's amazing, right? Here you have Commander in Chief, flat out telling we are not, we're going to lose the battle. And then Tolstoy looks at him, and it's at three o'clock in the morning. He was sleeping when Kutuzov showed up, and he snaps at him and says, "Guess what? My job is to dabble with sauces and roasts. Yours is to fight war. So go Oof. and deal with it." Oof. So Kutuzov then goes back and this. Rejection, right? Rejected, downhearted, and watches in dismay as these orders are being copied, are sent out. And he's not the only one who knows that things will be going really bad. Peter Bagration, probably one of the brightest Russian commanders, who is commanding the Russian right flank at Austerlitz, he receives his copy of this position about 30 minutes before the start of the battle. He quickly reads it turns to his officers and tells them, we'll be defeated.
0: <laughs> I've just been watching the Soviet War and Peace, which is available on the Criterion channel. That's, is it Bondarchuk? Am I getting, yeah, am getting it's, that right? And it's
1: been digitally remastered. So
0: yes, it's yeah, it's beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful and strange, you know, it's sort of strange to watch this Soviet production of, yeah. of War and Peace, but very interesting in that the actor who plays, I've been pronouncing it Bagration, but I, I defer, yeah, yeah it, it is um, very, really, very good. I recommend yeah. it, actually. Yes. So we, let we could we could probably spend a whole episode talking about the the battle itself, but I'm conscious of time, and we, we, are, we are on the, the sort of penultimate event before 1812 in terms of significant, highly significant military action. So why don't we why don't we move to that? Napoleon invades Russia, and you spoke earlier of the grand strategy that Kutuzov developed. Talk about that strategy, how he developed it and and, and what it entailed.
1: And I, I want to uh, mention one thing, Aaron, before we kind of sure, get to well, because it's part of that strategic thinking of Kutuzov. So we see a glimpse of it in 1805 when he clearly validates the situation very rationally, coldly, so to speak, and sees kind of that the, the, the strategy that the Russian army needs to pursue is that of protracted warfare. When we look then in 1810, 1811, so before 1812, 1810, 1811, Kutuzov is appointed as a commander in chief of Russian forces in the Nubian principalities in what is today Romania to command to fight against the Turks and to bring an end to a long war that the Russians were fighting against the Turks. And there we again see a very calculated man, a man who clearly who assesses the situation clearly, rationally, and he makes kind of guesses, but informed guesses on what the opponents will do. And it's reading his letters, you see that he tries to get into the Turkish kind of Ottoman mindset and see how the Grand Vizier will react to this situation. What are the political pressures on the Grand Vizier? And he correctly predicts what the Ottomans will do, and then he reacts to it, culminating in this brilliant victory that Kutuzov scores at Russe in 1811, when he completely outmaneuvers the Ottoman army, traps it in a camp, and forces it to surrender. So when we get to 1812, the war begins in June. Tuzov is, is just returned, just returned from the, the new principality. So he's not involved in the opening shots of the war. There is no commander-in-chief in the Russian army. Instead, we have three separate armies. One, the main army is led by Minister of War, by Second army, in size, is led by Peter Bagration. The third army is led by Tormasov, Alexander Tormasov, and they have a certain kind of level of flexibility and independence because they are army commanders. But they all kind of listen to Barclay de Tolly because he's the Minister of War. Although it's not the same as having one supreme commander, and so that creates difficulties, because especially because de Tully Barclay de Tolly and Bagration disagree on strategy. Bagration wants more assertive, more offensive-minded strategy. Barclay, only correctly, realizes that what Russians need is a pro, pro, kind of protracted defensive strategy, and so he smartly retreats. But that puts him under enormous public pressure from both from his own officers, from the society, from Alexander, who who want victories. They no one wants to see the army keep retreating and surrendering cities. And and so in August, just as the Napoleon is getting to Smolensk, Alexander decides to remove Barclay de and appoint Kutuzov as the supreme commander in chief, effectively subordinating all land forces to one man, and that is Kutuzov. And Kutuzov promises that he will stand up and kind of fight battle against Napoleon. But when I looked at his kind of thinking, especially, I looked at the reminiscences of. He's one of his family members who spend the evening with him before Kutuzov left. And there, Kutuzov actually tells his kind of, family of friends and, and, and family that he doesn't necessarily hopes to defeat Napoleon. And that's a very interesting statement to make for you know for a new uh, commander-in-chief. But rather, he tells his friends and family that he intends to outsmart Napoleon. Mm-hmm. And here we we talk about kind of grand strategy that you know defeat will take place kind of tactical operational level. And Kutuzov have, have, has some concerns there because he has studied Napoleon. That's actually a quote from his letters that he studied Napoleon, he studied his life, his campaigns, how he wages war. He he refers to Napoleon as the greatest captain of this age, so he has great respect for this man. So, when he in, in the circle of kind of trusted circle he admits that he might not be able to defeat, but he hopes that on the grand strategic level, he will outsmart. And we see that when, Napoleon, when Kutuzov takes over command of the army in late August, despite his promises of, hey, I'm gonna go on offensive and defeat Napoleon, he actually continues to tolis strategy of retreat and then adds layer to it. And the biggest layer for me is his decision to abandon Moscow, right? That is a decision that Barkhary Datoly would have been lynched for. I have no doubts that if he had made the decision to surrender Moscow, one of the officers would have shot him because in the earlier weeks, even before, you know, before even getting to Smolensk, these officers were so radicalized and kind of inflamed that they were willing to use violence to remove him from power. But Kutuzov was that symbol of Russian might, greatness, he's a Russian nobleman, he comes from the Suvorovian kind of romance of school. He is the one who just won the war against the Ottoman Turks and kind of brought glory to Russia. And therefore it was kind of okay for him to do it. But on a grand strategic level, that decision is a masterstroke. And Kutuzov writes in his letters that he wanted Moscow to be that point that will stop Napoleon. Because he looks at Napoleon, not, necessarily, not only as a commander in chief of an army, but as a political leader. Right? Napoleon is an emperor and a commander-in-chief. And that Kutuzov looks at this and realizes that Napoleon needs a political solution to this war. And he wants the Kutuzov wants to dangle Moscow as the possibility of that political solution in front of Napoleon so that the Russians can ga- gain a breathing space, a period of time when they can regroup. And so he, he says. There is a wonderful quote that I use as a title of one of the chapters that Napoleon is like a torrent, right? this massive force that this landslide likes rushing down the slope, smashing everything on its way until something will kind of soak it up. Right? If you just stand there in conventional way, it will overwhelm you, but you have to find a way to soak it. And for Kutuzov, that sponge, as he says, sponge that will soak this torrent in is Moscow. By giving Moscow to Napoleon, he knows Napoleon will stop there, think that this political center, this historical capital of Russia is a good trophy for him. He will try to negotiate. And that will be the downfall because Kutuzov knows for certain that there is no way Russians will negotiate with him. And he does. Gives Moscow to Napoleon. He regroups the army at the fortified camp at Tarutino. Even better than that, whenever Napoleon tries to reach out, and he does on several occasions to negotiate with, Nepo- with, with the Russians, Kutuzov deliberately so cultivates this outreach, kind of, uh, these offers to create an kind of vision in Napoleon's head that the Russians might be willing to negotiate. Loristan, for example, famously visits Russian camp in October, and Kutuzov is like, yeah, of course, you want to negotiate? We'll think about it. I will send a letter to St. Petersburg, knowing that that letter will take two weeks going back and forth. That's the two weeks he needs to complete the reforming of the army, and that's is a grand strategic level. And I think yeah. here at this junction, October Kutuzov outsmarts Napoleon.
0: That's a, a really amazing account and analysis. And listening to you, I can't I can't actually decide whether this fundamentally undermines the Tolstoyan vision of the. You know, essentially passive man who who is almost you know a kind of symbol of yeah. of of determinism and and the Russian soul's embrace of acceptance of fate or something like that. Yeah. because on the one on the one hand, everything you've just laid out is obviously the opposite of all of that. Here you have an active mind making decisions, conceiving of a strategy and executing on it. On the other hand, what is the strategy? Well, it is a kind of, it's, Handball, Eastern, right? it's Eastern in its way, you know, just to speak in broad stereotypes. It is about sort of accepting the force of this invasion. But let allow, me add like a layer, layer of complexity please, then to please, that. Please, please, Because I, to chip away at the Tolstoyan vision,
1: Kutuzov looks at the, uh, the grand strategy is to bid for time. But on the operational level, right, what Kutuzov does is he wages asymmetrical warfare against Napoleon. And here we see him learning from previous experiences of other opponents of Napoleon and and especially experiences in Spain. So what Kutuzov does is in late, in in September, in early September, -September mid-September, this time range. So right as uh, Borodino is fought and then they are moving to surrender Moscow, Kutuzov starts forming flying detachments. These are uh, units of regular troops whose task it is to... Conduct hit-and-run kind of operations, and he forms some two dozen of them who that effectively surround the Grand Armée and Napoleon in Moscow, and they are not in they are not tasked of engaging in these kind of protracted pitched battles. Not at all. In fact, I've read the instructions that Kutuzov writes to these individual commanders, and you see his thinking. The thinking is asymmetrical target logistical bases, target communication lines, target can exhaust this army while it is stuck in Moscow because Napoleon is seeking political solution to the war. And then then yet another layer to this is that, again, Kutuzov using the prior knowledge of what happened is he is very keen on inciting what we can call popular war, popular resistance, Mm -hmm. what Spanish refer to as guerrilla, right, the small war. In fact, Kutuzov uses this term, Malaya Vainat, which is a small war. He deliberately sends out officers to the local communities, to villages, to peasants, to serfs, and kind of excites them to rise up by the stories of atrocities that the French are committing. He actually provides these peasants with weapons to form the units of local resistance, even when local nobles... Landowners are expressing reservations about arming the people that they own, right? That what if the people turn their weapons on us? And Kutuzov is like, don't worry, I'm going to excite them against the enemy, right? There is this target that I'm going to paint, and they're going to follow an attack. And in those few occasions when the, kind of the local resistance got out of hand and targeted landowners, Kutuzov actually diverts his troops to deal with the uh, suppression of revolts. And so here you have, therefore, kind of a man who, on one hand, is passive, right? He doesn't engage in battles, but on the other hand, he is very engaged in crafting the grand strategy, and in in, in unleashing the, kind of the hounds that will hunt down the enemy. And to me, that's that's I think a hallmark of a very capable commander. Now he's been; we he would be lambasted by contemporaries, who, who kind of. Uh, especially officers who are up, uh, upset that, you know, we are kind of waiting and that waiting doesn't produce battles, battles doesn't produce glory, glory doesn't give us uh, right promotions and awards. And so they write these letters to, uh, to Alexander of complaints saying, we need a new commander. You know, Kutuzov is, is too passive. And uh, Alexander actually convinced council, Privy Council of War, to review these complaints. And every time the council gets together, they kind of come back and say, don't worry, that's fine. This is the right strategy. In fact, one of the accusations against Cotuzo was that, oh, he's just in his quarters sleeping 18 hours a day. And uh, the council received this letter and looked at it. And the response was, and this is a quote, well, thank God he's asleep. Every day of his inaction is equal to a battle
0: won. <laughs> <laughs> it's very reminiscent of uh, yeah. of of yeah. uh, the complaint being made to Lincoln that Grant, Lincoln's response, he wanted to know what kind of liquor he could, the Grant drinks <laughs> yeah. so he could ship it to his other generals, because yeah. uh, obviously, uh, you know, yeah. it works.
1: Exactly. Uh, that's right. That's right. And I think that's kind of, this is the rightness of the strategy, but also the fact that right people at the right positions of power saw that Kutuzov's approach to war was beneficial, meant that Despite of vociferous condemnation of his of his strategy, Tuzo was not removed from that. So, he in the fate of Barclay de he had people at the Privy Council of War who vouched for him, so stood up for him, and who convinced the Tsar to let him be essentially, let the strategy play out. And of and of course, by November, by late November, we see Napoleon retreating. Uh, Russians are in pursuit. So it's clearly the strategy will kind of
0: Prove its worth Joseph dies uh, of of natural causes the next year. didn't get a whole lot of of downtime in that life. It seems. can you can you I, I want to be respectful of your time here. It's been fascinating. so we've we've gone on for a while. But just briefly, would you would you speak to his legacy? you know, perhaps I think very interestingly in Soviet times, but but also also today, I mean, obviously, actions that he engaged in in his career have, have have relevance to events in Ukraine today. So just, just talk a bit about the, the legacy of Kutuzov.
1: The legacy is I think can be divided into kind of two parts. One is the immediate legacy of what he has accomplished in terms of kind of navigating the political, political needs of the of the nation in 1812. This legacy is not necessarily all positive. So of course his strategy I think was effective. I think it produced results, but there is a, 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 a flaw in it that contemporaries complained about, and I, and I pointed out in the book, in that when Napoleon ultimately decided to retreat from Moscow, Kutuzov pursued him, but he pursued him with a certain distance, right? Kind of a, a, a strategy that later on became known as a strategy of parallel march. So Napoleon was marching, and main Russian army was marching parallel it kind of nipping at the heels, but not trying to destroy it. And Kutuzov was confronted many times on this issue of him not engaging Napoleon, not seeking to completely destroy. And his response was invariably kind of constant that he was thinking down the road. Once again, kind of trying strategic thinking of what will happen in Europe if he, if he manages to completely obliterate Napoleon's power, Napoleon's army. So he was concerned that Napoleon's downfall, let's say Napoleon was routed somewhere at Smolensk or captured at Berezina, right? What will that uh, cause in Europe? Will that be another revolution in France and a cycle of revolutionary transformations or turmoil in the rest of Europe? Or or more crucially, he, and and this is what we see in his letters, is that he was concerned that downfall of French empire will open the path for the British dominance in, in Europe. And he wanted to use weakened France not destroyed, but weakened Napoleon as a way of counterbalancing that British influence. But of course, that meant that Napoleon was not going to in 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 Russia, but he was allowed to escape, right? He gets out, he forms another army, war rages for another year and a half, costs hundreds of thousands of lives. And of course, enormous material losses until he is finally defeated. So, if if Kutuzov was more engaged in, uh, in in seeking out that battle, maybe Waterloo would have happened somewhere in in remote corners of northern Ukraine or or Belarus, right? So that's where the, his legacy is quite interesting. But of course, the facts on the ground is that he led the army to this victory, uh, and in uh, 1813, when he dies the Russian army is already kind of seeking liberation of Germany rather than figuring out what to do with Napoleon and Russia. So that's kind of short term. Now, long term, it's a legacy that in many respects is overblown. And it's overblown by both the imperial Russian government and especially by the Soviet government. Already contemporaries can complain that when Kutuzov died, there were so many eulogies written about how awesome he was. That you know one of the writers at the time kind of spoke that you know <laughs> that this is a pamphlet that appeared in 1813 that Kutuzov accomplished this is a quote Kutuzov accomplished more than Caesar, Hannibal, and Scipio Africanus combined. Come on now, right? <laughs> but there was this kind of overblown celebration of the man. The fact that Kutuzov received an honor previously or ever since unheard of of being buried in the middle of this great cathedral that became a pantheon of military glory. Also, served the role of, of turning him into a national institution so that any critical voices or pointing out the problems or mistakes that he is going to make were all drowned out. Then, Tolstoy writes this novel that turns Tolstoy into this kind of philosophical right concept of a of kind of construct that can be juxtaposed against Napoleon. If Napoleon is a man of action that who tries to control his own fate, Kutuzov is a con- contemplative, kind of more of a resigned man who understands that there are bigger issues at play and that he will go with flow. And then we get to the Soviet era, and the Soviet era uses Kutuzov to create an image of an archetypal Russian commander with a peculiar Russian way of war. And that is particularly important during World War II, when, as we know, Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, and the first, what, two years, are a calamity for Soviets, right? An absolute disaster. Well, in order to justify this calamity, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin kind of looks back to historical parallels and say, Hey, we're not surprised in June of 41. We didn't retreat all the way to Moscow because Germans forced us. This was actually a carefully planned strategy, just like Kutuzov did in 1812. And once Stalin kind of lays out his vision, this explanation, then you have generations of Soviet and Russian historians who try to build the national narrative around this mythical figure of Kutuzov. Who makes no mistakes, who anticipates all enemies' moves, who is you know, the, the symbol of the Russian greatness. And that narrative continues to the present day. There is the, the recent biography that of, of Kutuzov that came out in Russia. And now, uh, granted, it's not necessarily a scholarly biography, but it gives you kind of the, the sense of where some of the Russian writers stand when he said, you know, this author writes that. In, in all of world history, I cannot find accomplishments comparable to those of Kutuzov in 1812. Like, Come on now. Yeah. And actually, you know, Putin's government and Vladimir Putin's government in the last 20 years kind of weaponized history for political benefits. And we see, especially in the Napoleonic era history, which went through the bicentennial s- celebrations between 1805 and the 18, 18- mm-hmm. no, oh, sorry, 2005 and 2000. 12, 15, at each point, Russian government actually used this memory of struggle against Napoleon to deliver this notion that you know, of rec- reclaiming Russian greatness. And Kutuzov is part and parcel of it to the degree that uh, just this year in September, when there was yet again kind of commemorative events at Borodino, you have, uh, you know, my friend sent me this kind of photo of the poster, massive poster that was made for the event in which Kutuzov stands, it's the largest figure in the background, but in front of him are the rebel leaders, Russian rebel leaders from modern day Ukraine, right, leading the you know, the commanding units against the Ukrainians in, in the current war. And it's, it's just juxtaposition of the Kutuzov as the, the man who led Russia to greatness in 1812. And now this new generation of military commanders kind of trying to lead Russia to, to a new greatness. So in that sense, Kutuzov's legacy continues to be with us because he's part of this memory. And in in, in the book, I kind of end, end my narrative on kind of kind of you know on this on this point where I say that Kutuzov is part of history, right? But also is beyond it because this Tolstoyan vision, this myth that the Russian government created will be with us for the years to come.
0: Alex Mika author of Kutuzov: A Life in War and Peace. and I, I have to say, I mean of course you're you're an endowed cherry you're author of these magnificent books, but your your most impressive accomplishment is you you are now a part of the elect even elite circle of multi-time uh, war <laughs> guests. I actually, Colin, I don't know if we Thank I think you. it's Andrew Lambert and Alex. I'm I, oh, I, that's I, actually so, so it's Andrew- a limited. Yeah, we have got Andrew few- Lambert
1: is is who
0: I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's like I said, uh, it's an electric.
1: I know pro- I cannot promise that at you know, the start of the podcast you are noting how long this book is. I can't promise my next one will be shorter, but I hope it will deserve <laughs> the opportunity to come back well for what is a very enjoyable conversation.
0: Absolutely. Would would love to have you anytime. Thank you for so much for joining. This is a nebulous media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.